Recorded live.
Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. December 26th, day after Christmas. Long weekend, blue sky, sunshine. How could it be any better? No snow, but we've lived in this house for 32 years. And actually, it'll be our 33rd Christmas. And we uh, have had three brown Christmases during that time. But we never had a Christmas where it got up to 49 degrees, which it did yesterday. So uh, weather today, sunny, high near 41. West wind, 7 to 9. Tonight, snow likely after 4 a.m. It's actually tomorrow morning. Increasing clouds, low around 26. West wind around 5 miles an hour, becoming calm tomorrow night. Since the precipitation is 60%, uh, new snow accumulation of less than an inch overnight. And then Sunday, snow before 1 p.m., and then snow, freezing rain, and sleet. High near 31. East wind around 7 miles an hour. Since the precipitation Sunday is 100%, it's going to precipitate. New ice accumulation less than a tenth of an inch possible and new snow and sleet accumulation of 3 to 7 inches. And 7 inches are more likely up around Presque Isle to Madawaska, and the 3 inches are more likely down from Bangor down to Lincoln or so. Excuse me, Millinocket down to Lincoln. Uh, Sunday night, low uh, snow likely before 11 p.m., then a chance of snow showers between 11 and 1 a.m. Cloudy, low around 16 North wind, 7 to 9 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, Sunday night, 70%. New snow accumulation of around an inch. Monday, patchy blowing snow. Mostly sunny. High near 18. North, north wind, 11 to 14 miles an hour with gusts as high as 24 miles an hour. So it's going to be kind of brisk. If we do get any ice, I hope it melts off before that wind. Well, looks like old man winter kind of going to get up and stretch and say, oh, my goodness, i got to catch up. 1985, Cook Lake in Lincoln, right there on Main Street, was wide open, shore to shore, Christmas Day. We had a sled dog race scheduled. And that sled dog race was supposed to be early February. And early February, we had 22 inches of ice on the lake and the trucks all over the lake. So when it comes, it can come fast and hard. Gas is $1.84 a gallon in Calus, lowest price in the state. It's 2.31 in Madawaska, except for that station down there in New Gloucester that always has prices highest in the state. They seem to be proud of it. The highest gas is in Madawaska, and it's they're all 231, which is nearly 50 cents a gallon higher than Calus. 
Diesel is two twenty two in Ken- in Kennebunk, down seven cents. Diesel is two ninety three in Gardner, down seventeen cents. Seventeen cent drop is is a pretty big drop for fuel prices. But the, I didn't look up the home heating oil because it's not on that same website. But home heating oil is way down. I heard somebody had paid two sixty five a gallon. So there are no no highest prices for diesel in the rest of the county. The uh, the tankers in the in the Atlantic are uh, are full of fuel and they're uh, they don't have a place to deliver. It's kind of a dilemma for the for the tanker industry. Where they've got bulk finished product. This isn't this is not crude oil. This is this is diesel or aviation fuel or gasoline or whatever it is is hauled by tanker to countries that that do not have refineries. Like there's no oil refineries in France, to the best of my knowledge. All of their fuel is imported. The natural gas comes from Russia by pipeline goes through the Ukraine and skirts around the Alps and then eventually it gets to France. I suppose they might get some by uh, compressed natural gas uh, by tanker, but the trend is that that we're, we're finding more and more oil and natural gas. We're getting good at it. There are more proven reserves than ever before in the history of the world. My brother-in-law is here for for Christmas. He's heading back to New Hampshire today. Uh, Weather's supposed to be bad tomorrow, so he doesn't want to travel tomorrow. So, anyway, we're uh, the price of oil and gas is down, and it's because of lack of demand. Now we've got lots of lots of of resources. We've discovered more oil and gas than ever before. It's proven resources. It's not somebody speculating that you know we're gonna by some magical process we're creating more fuel. It's in the ground, and it's easier to get as we improve our technology. And it would, prices would be even lower if we had the Keystone Pipeline. But we've got uh, in Canada, they uh, they interviewed the 25 or so newspaper editors and uh, media personalities, probably the two Canadian TV networks. And they found that they, they decided that the the biggest story of the year is the price of oil and its far-reaching impact on the Canadian economy. It's the business story of the year. And the oil collapse has pushed crude oil prices to lowest it's been in 11 years. And now they're saying this is this is a good chance to make overdue improvements to Canada's oil market. And it's a good 
chance for U.S. companies to build a couple of new refineries. The problem with that is the environmentalists don't want us to have new refineries. They don't want us to burn fossil fuel of any kind. They want us to have windmills for those days when it's windy and solar for those days when it's sunny. That's the way they want us to to manage our energy use. Of course, we wouldn't be managing it. We would just be seizing the opportunity. When it's a sunny day, we'd make more solar, obviously. And, you know, they forget that we have winters. Uh, down on the equator, uh, as I mentioned a few times, daylight is... It is, you know, 12 hours a day, every day, year-round, which was a big surprise to me when I went to Vietnam, very close to the equator. And I just figured that, you know, in June, the days would get longer. They don't. <laughs> and up, of course, above the Arctic Circle, they have 24-hour sunshine for a few months every year. And below the Antarctic Circle. They have that. I've been there. 24 hours daylight. And you, you know, you work when when you want to, and you sleep when when you get tired. It's it's a strange routine. It follows up your biological patterns. But the world has an average of 12 hours a day of sunlight year round. Now, it doesn't vary down at the equator. The further you get from the equator, the more it varies. And they have a time, we have 24 hours of sunlight above the Arctic Circle, as I said. And that's the time to have a solar panel. Of course, you've got to keep the solar panel aimed at the sun. Otherwise, the sun will be shining on the backside of the solar panel half the time. But that's, that's the way to make electricity up there. And because it's so, you can't run power up there. It's it's less expensive up there than it is running a generator because you got to haul the fuel, and you got to have a windmill up there if you want to have windmill to make electricity. You know, you want to have it in a place that's that's relatively flat or at a high elevation. You know, you don't put it in the bottom of a valley which the environmentalists wanted us to do. They wanted us to put the windmills in the bottom of the valley so they wouldn't have to look at them. It's just the way they think. They want to make things less efficient for us in every way. Reduce our standard of living. They tell us that on a regular basis. We just have to listen. So we've got We've got wind power, and they just passed a, another law in Maine that says they're going to increase the amount of wind power. But on a calm day, you've got to have a source of energy that's reliable. One of those is hydro. But the environmentalists don't like hydro because it disturbs the flow of the water. It doesn't make it dirty. It just, you know, it modulates the flow of water. You have a reservoir, and when the wind dies down, you open the valve on the reservoir. 
and run water down through. Make electricity. And when you've got good solar and you've got good wind and uh, you want to cut down on the cost of fuel, you save the water. So now we've got a situation where Bunker C, which is a low grade of fuel, just slightly above asphalt, and uh, you heat it up and you spray it, and it's very efficient. There's a lot of energy in it. There's more energy per pound in Bunker C than there is in gasoline. But of course, you can't run Bunker C in a motor vehicle. But they run Bunker C to run ships, and they just heat it up spray it into the boiler, make steam, and and uh, it runs the ship. And then you got they decided that steam is is awkward and old fashioned, even though it's highly efficient. So the military decided they're gonna run jet turbines and use the hot gas in the turbine to spin an electrical generator and make make the energy to run the ship and propel the ship. Gee, that sounds, sounds like it's real, almost like science fiction. So they built the USS Milwaukee. Now, the Milwaukee uh, wasn't built at Bath Iron Works. It was built in Newport News, Virginia, or down in uh, Louisiana. I'm not sure which. It's the only two shipyards that does medium to large ships, like carriers and stuff. Of course, submarines are built in New London, Connecticut. That's a separate thing. But the Milwaukee was commissioned, and they've got a small crew because it's all automated. And it's it's a high-tech ship. Milwaukee went to Nova Scotia. And and they uh, went into Halifax for a, a port visit. People went on Liberty, and a few dignitaries got to go on the ship and walk around and say who went on. And they they departed Halifax and headed down their home port. It's going to be Mayport, Florida, right near Jacksonville. And they headed out, and they're. Doing, still doing some testing, and they've got some of the engineers and the designers for the ship aboard. And they kicked her in high gear and went tearing off. That ship will do 50 knots. It's the fastest surface ship in the Navy. And there may be carriers that can do that, but we, we're we not supposed to know if that's true or not. The carriers, when they kick them in high gear and get all the nukes running, they... Uh, they can cover some ground. But the Milwaukee got a couple hundred miles south of of uh, Halifax, and they spun a bearing. They lost the lube oil pump, and before they could get the ship stopped, they lost a turbine and a shaft. I don't know how many screws it has. It might be one of these new ships with a single screw and a variable pitch propeller. I just don't know that. And 
but they lost propulsion. So there they are adrift in the North Atlantic on the Navy's newest and most technologically advanced ship. They got a seagoing tug to go out and get it there, headed down to Mayport, Florida, towed behind a tug, Navy's newest ship. Putin must be laughing, his, laughing himself to sleep. If you're going to do something like this, put in a propulsion plant like this, they ought to do it in a ship. It's a little less important the first time they build one. Now, the technology for variable pitch screws has been around for a long time. There are single-screw tugboats that generate a great deal of thrust, forward or backward, and the tugboat can sit there in one spot and turn around and around in one spot because of the variable pitch screw. They can just control the thrust forward and backward, but they can feather one blade so that as it passes over the top of its revolution, it then pivots and it's perpendicular uh, to the ship or parallel with the shaft, depending on how you look at it. So it can have direct side thrust in either direction from the stern. And it's a three-bladed prop. might be four or five blades for all I know, but it's a it's a prop that, that uh, can thrust sideways. And at the same time, thrust forward or backward slightly to, to adjust. Amazing technology, and it's all done with varying the pitch of the individual blades with hydraulics. Well, guess what else has variable pitch individual blades with hydraulics? Helicopters, something I know about. And you vary the pitch of the blades in a helicopter to tip the nose up and down and to turn left and right. And you adjust your propulsion, your direction of flight with the tail rotor in most helicopters. And you got the Chinook, great big tandem rotor helicopter made by Boeing in Philadelphia. And that is a, is a beast of a helicopter. And the two blades will go in opposite, in opposite directions. They have to as far as rotation goes. But they can also tip in opposite directions to sit there and hover and turn right around in, a, in the same spot. So the technology is out there. You know, when they fired off the first Atlas rocket, you know, it's the most, most powerful rocket we had, and the design is still there. It's still the highest thrust rocket we have in the country, and it was for listing, lifting heavy loads. And... Uh, but the first time they fired one off, they didn't put a man on it or a dog or anything else. You know, when the Soviets launched their first uh, satellite to orbit the Earth, of course, they had that little that little one about the size of a basketball. It just went beep, 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 and Sputnik. And that was a big triumph. They were the first ones to do it. When you can orbit an object... You can orbit a weapon, and that's 
spooked us, and we wound up having a space race. A lot of good technology came out of that. But back to energy, we've got way too much political correctness influencing and controlling our use of energy in our country. You know, a lot of people don't want to have these active active uh, electricity meters on the house, power, power meters. They can go down the road without even stopping. They can just go click, 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 click with a with Emera and uh, out of Bangor, for example, or East, Eastern Main Electric. I don't know if they're involved in that. It doesn't sound like a project that Eastern Main Electric would like to get involved in. They've got a lot of very rural customers that don't use much electricity. It would not be productive for them to go that route. Their board of directors are smart enough to not to go down that road. But what used to be Bangor Hydro is now Emera, and they're gobbling up. It's a Spanish company, and they're buying up all of our utilities. Spaniards are pretty good businessmen, and they... Uh, they don't refer, refer to them as Hispanics. You know, their first language is Spanish, and they, usually in Europe they speak multiple languages, but they're good businessmen. They have been ever since Christopher Columbus came over this way, trying looking for some business. They uh, They own a lot of toll roads in our country. Texas, Louisiana, and all around Washington, D.C., large cities have toll roads. That's how they maintain the road. And toll roads move traffic more efficiently than government roads. And many toll roads are privately owned. When they built that big new airport, Dulles, about 30 or 40 miles outside of Washington, D.C., that's how far out they had to go to get land cheap enough to build a large commercial airport. So they uh, they put in a toll road to get there, helped to pay off the airport. People enjoy it. It's a good ride. Half the people going in and out of Dallas are either government employees or business people, and their travel is paid for by the business. They want their people to be able to go from place to place efficiently. used to do that myself. Worked in Canada for seven years. And the company would buy me a brand new Ford Explorer. As soon as I hit 50,000 miles, they'd, I'd trade it in and get another one. They wanted, they wanted their, their people to have good, reliable transportation. It's efficient. If you lose a day due to there was a vehicle breakdown. You know, it, it costs the company money. And there's lost opportunities. The same with utilities in Maine. You know, Lincoln Pulp and Paper. Well, it used to be called Lincoln Pulp and Paper. Now they're called, uh, the latest, latest edition was Lincoln Paper and Tissue. And maybe it changed to Lincoln Tissue and Paper. I don't know what the final end-of-the-road name was, 
but they're in there. Maybe not today, but they're in there now. Uh, tearing out old equipment for scrap value. <laughs> and they had some large cylindrical scrap out of the pulp mill. And they're cutting it up in slices to move it. And they were having cranes come and, and uh, load these things onto trucks. One of the guys that worked in the mill went to the salvage company and said, geez, what are you doing that for? Oh, we've got to load it out, get it out of here. He says, look, he says, it's already cut up into slices. Cut up your slices eight feet wide, which is the width of the truck, or seven and a half feet, and roll it onto the truck. Well, how are you going to do that? He says, you got an excavator, dig a hole. Jack the truck down and roll it into the truck. Push it in with there with a bucket loader. Put a wooden wedge behind it and then push the next one in. Gee, what a great idea. Where did you think of that? He says, that's how we used to load pulp wood when I was a kid. <laughs> it's true. You know, they cut these 18, 20-inch diameter spruce logs. You're not going to throw that onto a truck with a pulp hook. You roll it into the truck. And you roll it up a ramp and you put a trig under it. Trig. A trig is a wedge or a block of wood to hold something that could roll in position. It's a word you don't hear outside the state of Maine. You're going to trig it. Like a, and you stop your tractor on a hillside. You know, you get your, your farm hand to put a trig under the tire so it won't roll down the hill while you're making your adjustment. To the potato picker. So, there's another main word that you just don't hear outside the state of Maine. People kind of blink and look at you when you say you're going to trig it. The only trig they've ever heard of is trigonometry in algebra class. So, the second most uh, significant story in Canada this year. And of course, our folks across, across the brook listening to this show. The second most significant one was the fall of the loony. Loony is declining in value as compared with the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is holding its value only because of the size of our economy. There are more people living in California than there are people living in the entire nation of Canada. Now, Canada is bigger than Europe, geographically. And it has seven time zones. Seven time zones. We have four. Canada has three time zones more than we do. So, Canada loony is falling. Last time that happened was around 1998 or 99, right in that era. But I was there. And when the loony collapsed then, because of the liberals they had in, in the Canadian government, they, uh, you know, they couldn't afford to buy our products anymore, and that was the end of my job up there. They had to hire local Canadian guy for a lot less money and try to sell the product, but that didn't work because they simply couldn't buy the product. 
It was the best packaging material that in the world at the time. And they couldn't afford to buy it. They just put on regular brown paper, like made out of a paper bag, and to keep the rolls of paper off the paper machine from getting dirty before they got to the press room. That's okay, unless you have to store the paper in an unheated warehouse. <laughs> That's when waterproof wrapper becomes very important because when it's paper's 20 below zero and you bring it indoors, the first thing it does is it attracts every speck of water vapor in the whole building onto that paper and it gets all welted up and wrinkly and all bad. And they try to blame the peop- company that made the paper. Interesting, the paper industry. It's gone through many booms and busts. price of paper would go down along with the economy. And if you reach a point where a paper mill cannot run uh, and make a profit. But losing money when operating for a short period of time, like six or eight months or even a year, losing money is better than shutting the paper mill down and having to heat the place and pay unemployment insurance to all the employees. It's less expensive to lose money than it is to shut down. But then you reach a point where you just can't do it forever and you can't make it, and the company closes or the mill closes. Most paper companies own more than one mill. The Lincoln Mill was the only privately owned, fully integrated pulp and paper mill in the world in 1983 when I went to work there. And then there were a couple more that were bought out by small investment groups, and there was freestanding single mill companies. There were a few of those. And one of them was uh, the old Eastern Paper Company in Brewer. That was a a single mill operation for a while. And then the uh, mills began to just close down because the demand for paper is cyclical. It goes up and down with the economy in general. But these mills are not going to come back because you've got a laptop sitting there and they can get the news off the laptop some of the newspapers want you to buy, pay a dollar a month to look at the news on the laptop, and they'll give you a few free ones in the beginning of the month. And, but if you want to use it on a regular basis, they want to pay a dollar a month. Well, well, the Press Herald was the first one in Maine to do that. And they tried it, and it didn't work. People wouldn't pay the dollar. They'd look at 10, 10 free articles, and then they'd go look at the same news in the Lewiston Sun Journal. And then they'd go look at it on the Bangor Daily News, better known as Pravda on the Penobscot, because of their left-wing approach to the news. You get something good economic news, and somebody has gone out and done something uh, beneficial to the state of Maine. And what do they do? They write an article about the impact on the environment. Not the fact that this guy's going to hire people and provide jobs and boost the economy and make that town healthier. No. I mean, talk about the impact on the environment. 
and they try to scare people when there's no reason to be afraid. Our rivers and air are cleaner than they've been since the industrial age began in the 1840s. Tanneries used to dump their waste vats in the river. They had no other place to do it. They didn't know how to do it any any other way. And gradually, industry became more efficient, and they didn't dump all their waste in the Originally, when they first started making chemical pulp, they dumped the waste product before they developed the thing called the recovery boiler, where they recovered that raw material and used it again and again and again. That's recycling in its purest and most efficient form. And they still attack the environmentalists, still attack the paper mills. Now we have a situation in Maine where there is not one acre of paper mill land owned in the state of Maine. No Maine paper company owns any timberland. So what happened to it? Those companies didn't go away like a whipped puppy. When an army is defeated, they generally leave behind a pretty desolate landscape. When Sherman marched through Georgia, he burned all the crops, he burned all of the industrial base, destroyed it, blew stuff up, tore up railroads, removed dams. I mean, he just destroyed the place because Georgia was their, the hub of their industry at that time and agriculture. He destroyed crops. It was bad. But the South surrendered. He said, well, we can't keep this up. We cannot We cannot support this effort anymore. And they, they surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. Robert E. Lee presented his sword to Joshua Chamberlain. Ulysses Grant didn't even want to talk to him. and uh, Or maybe he hadn't sobered up that morning. I don't know. But Joshua Chamberlain of Maine, actually, who who held the left flank at, at uh, Little Round Top two years earlier. Gettysburg. People think that Lincoln's Gettysburg Address occurred at the end of the Civil War. It didn't. It did not. It occurred in the middle of the war, when it was at its most violent and precarious moment. He gave that speech trying to to rally the population. We'll get through this. And we'll get through what's coming now. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. But we're going to have a big adjustment in our nation. Because you can't print trillions of dollars out of nothing and get away with it. Because the, the economy cannot function this way. It's not possible. You can declare all the emergencies or whatever you want. It's still, it's going to unravel in some way. Maybe there'll be a really vicious sudden collapse in which there'll be a whole lot of finger painting. <laughs> finger pointing, excuse me. And uh, 
And that finger pointing will be well justified. The Republicans are a good example. We had a situation in Congress. We had majorities in both Congress, both the House and the Senate. We should have been able to pass some significant reform legislation that would help our economy and help our our citizens. They didn't do it. They chose not to. Says, well, you know, we don't have the presidency, and he'll veto it. Yep, he'll veto it. Meanwhile, they're letting him print money out of nothing. In fact, as a going-away president, the new Speaker of the House, where budget budget bills are supposed to originate, they gave Barack Hussein Obama no debt ceiling for the next 14 months till the end of his presidency. No debt ceiling. Spend all the money you want on whatever you want. In addition, they gave him a $1.1 trillion spending bill, which is Merry Christmas to Barack. What an incongruity that is. $1.1 trillion of additional spending and it's not a budget. We haven't had a budget since he's been in office. Budgets are supposed to originate in the House of Representatives. Our Constitution requires it. They've thrown the Constitution out the window. Just ignore it. And the population, mostly educated in the public schools, have no clue what's happening. And when it collapses, they're going to declare an emergency. Well, yep, <laughs> they've created it, and they're going to declare it, which means they're going to admit the guilt. And it's going to be really interesting to watch. As part of the emergency, they're going to try to they're going to try to confiscate private firearms because of the emergency. And they may even have to call in some assistance to do this from the UN. This is not some conspiracy theory. This is a plan that they have in writing, sitting there, ready to go. Now, the homicide rate in the United States has been graphed from 1885 to the present. And up until 1904, it was running around one, one per 100,000 is homicides in our country. And then the labor union movement wanted gun control. So the murder rate went from one to five, five times as high. Then they enacted prohibition back around 19, 1920, approximately. I don't know the exact date. And uh, they told people they couldn't drink. They said, well, <laughs> guess what, revenueers? We're going to drink, just like we did last year. And they had a war between the, the federal government and the population. 
and it went up to 11, excuse me, went up to 9. Nine people per 100,000 were murdered during Prohibition. And then Prohibition ended, and it dropped down to 5. So they had about 4.5 murders per 100,000. I'm looking at the graph here. And then, 1965, they declared the war on drugs. And it went back up to to 10. In fact, it peaked out at just over 10. So 10 people out of every 100,000 were murdered. And then, 1993, 22 years ago, the states began to issue concealed carry permits. Concealed carry was uh, was always an option in in some states, Vermont and a couple of other states. They always had concealed carry. They never abolished it, and those were the safest states. And in Maine, we had open carry forever from the beginning. You could carry a handgun on your hip. And they passed this year, earlier this year they passed, and became effective October 15th. You can carry concealed without a permit in Maine if you are not otherwise prohibited. In other words, you can't carry it into the federal building in Bangor. You can't carry it into a post office. You can't carry it into a school. That's that's a mistake, in my opinion. You should be able to carry. You shouldn't have to go somewhere rent a locker, put your handgun in the locker to go to the federal building to talk about your social security check or whatever reason you're going in there. You live 40 miles out in the woods, where are you going to drop it off? To go in the federal building. And it's a federal crime to carry it in there. I mean, it's a risk that you don't want to take. But now... The rate is back down below where it was in 1904. There were fewer people being murdered in our country than there were in 1904. And if you take away Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, New Orleans, and uh, Los Angeles... We're the safest nation in the world. Why not? In Switzerland, every household has a fully automatic weapon. Every household with an able-bodied man. And somebody is 75 years old and no longer, you know, has his faculties or whatever. You know, they, his his government-owned submachine gun is brought back down to the armory and they issue it to a young fellow. He keeps it clean and oiled and ready to go because he's in the in the the Swiss Reserve. They don't have a, a militia in the same respect that we do. But Adolf Hitler threatened uh, to invade Switzerland, you know, and they said they said we've got you know they said we're going to have to. They had a, I don't remember the exact quote, I'm sorry about that, but 
they say, we've got 80,000 men, and you've only got 40,000. You know, they says, well, I guess that means each one of us is going to have to fire twice, because the Swiss don't miss. Swiss are marksmen. We're trying to preserve marksmanship in our nation. Trying to preserve our heritage and educate people that uh, what the system has failed to educate. And we teach the history of what happened in our nation. At 8 o'clock this morning, precisely, was the anniversary of Washington's attack on Trenton, New Jersey. They rode across the Delaware on Christmas Day, and there was ice flows in the Delaware that day. They rode across in boats, back and forth and back and forth. They got their whole army across. They started out in Valley Forge, came into Philadelphia, went up up the river, because rivers flow down, obviously. So they had to go upstream in order to come out in the right spot. And they they rode and paddled, and they pushed the ice flows out of the way, and they went across the Delaware into New Jersey. And at 8 o'clock in the morning on December 26th, 239 years ago today, they attacked the Hessians at Trenton, and they defeated them. And it was a momentous battle and a turning point in the Revolutionary War. And then... They drove the Hessians ahead of them out of Trenton. They didn't just attack them and accept the surrender. They evicted them. You get out of here. You don't belong here. And they marched them from Trenton to Princeton. They attacked Princeton, New Jersey, five days later. Defeated the Redcoats at Princeton. Evicted them, marched them back up toward New York because there's no place to put them on a ship in New Jersey. They didn't execute them all. They just herded them up to New York. Huge victory. The war continued for seven more years. And we it went both ways. You know, the British would raid some town on the coast and, and uh, kill a bunch of people. We'd attack the British somewhere and uh, usually weren't able to defeat the British. We attacked them, and they inflicted a number of losses, but we were not able to drive them out until Yorktown, 1883. From time to time on this show, I'll I'll memorialize various states such as Trenton. This happened at 8 o'clock in the morning on December 26th, when the battle started, and they fought all day, and they drove the Hessians out of there. And at Valley Forge, the conditions were miserable. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough winter clothing. Many of the men who fought on the colonial side at Trenton were wearing wool socks and rags on their feet. They did not have shoes because they had come apart, been rotten. They just... Some cases they took whatever cloths they could have, which was usually wool, because cotton had had not become popular during the Revolutionary War. Cotton came much later. Most of the clothing was made of wool, and it was scratchy, but it was 
would keep you warm when it was wet. And for years we we forgot that as synthetics, rayon, and nylon came in, and cotton. I saw a sign at a motel in New Hampshire near a ski area, and it showed a skier in dungarees. And the, the, the quote on the sign was, cotton kills. You need to have wool or now polyester fleece. You've got to have an air barrier between your skin and the outdoors by whatever means possible. And multiple layers of cotton don't get it. Because when you perspire in cotton, it acts like an air conditioner. It cools you winter or summer. Now, in the summertime, you hear these as cotton keeps America comfortable. That's true. It does because it's, the evaporation is a natural air conditioner. But in the wintertime, you don't want that natural air conditioner. You want to have a nice, warm layer of air that does not retain humidity. But don't let people think we've got a firearms problem in our country. We do not have a firearms problem in our country. And the antics of... Barack Hussein Obama, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and that lunatic governor from Maryland, I can't think of his name at the moment, are giving fair warning to the patriots in our nation that you better arm up because you might not be able to buy new firearms unless they like you in the near future. Depends on how the election goes. It's going to be a very interesting election. And I'll share with you my thoughts on that. I think that patriots and responsible citizens in our nation who tend to be patriots, patriotic, ought to vote the Second Amendment. Now, two years ago, in the spring, there was a convention in Bangor. And I had something to do with that. Because the Republican Party had had a convention down in Portland two years earlier. And there were a few people from the Lewiston area that wanted to have it at the Call of Say in Lewiston. It was not a good venue for 2,000 people. Because most of them are going to have to stay there and uh, overnight. And two, they didn't have the hotel facilities adequate for that number of people. And they're going to have to be 20, 30 miles away and all that stuff. And they, they made a motion to have this convention at the Coliseum. And I raised my hand and I said, point of order. The chairman of the Republican Party was was surprised, and he said, "What do you mean, point of order?" I said, "Point." I explained to him what he knew what point of order meant, <laughs> but just to rub it in a little, I explained it to him. And yeah, I know what a point of order is. What's your point? I said, "We've got a brand new facility that's about to open in Bangor. 
It's now called the Cross Center. It's a beautiful convention facility. And now, since then, they have a good big hotel next door and a good big hotel across the street at the Hollywood Slots. And plenty of other new hotels in Bangor because it's a popular destination. I said, we should have it up at the... And I had about a dozen handouts that I was able to pass around because they hadn't even printed very many. And I walked in there to the to the Cross Center in Bangor and I said, hey, I've got a chance to pull this off if I can get some material from you. They weren't ready to hand out the material, but they gave them to me. And I went down there and they delayed it a month. They delayed it and then they had all kinds of material and it went to the Cross Center. And you've got to understand how the system works and you've got to understand when and how to take advantage of it. And we did that. It's a good thing for Bangor. It's a good thing for northern Maine. You didn't have to drive all the way down. Bangor is in the southern half of Maine, but those of us in northern Maine, you know, we can save a few bucks on gas. That's a good thing. So here we are sliding into 2016 election cycle. And I think that the Second Amendment is a human rights amendment. It's a human rights issue. It's not just a rule that can be misinterpreted. It is an absolute God-given human right that we should be able to defend ourselves. Guy lives down near Rockland. He's a disabled veteran. He's in a wheelchair, a power wheelchair. He has an apartment in a complex uh, for senior citizens and disabled people. It's not he's not a, inside of a of a nursing home. He is in his own apartment. He'd been robbed four times. Thieves had broken into his apartment and stolen his pain meds. He needs his pain meds. It's it's legitimate. Some people need pain meds because of their condition. I have no idea what this guy's condition is, but I'm, I've no doubt that it was a legitimate need. People became aware of it, and he was robbed four times. He got tired of it. He bought a revolver. And the next time they bashed in to rob him, he shot the the thief. The owner of the apartment wanted to evict him because he didn't want people running his apartment to be able to have firearms. He's a progressive, a liberal, and a scoundrel. And it's going to court. And they've already found at lower court that, yes, he can defend himself. It's a God-given right. Just like it was our, our right to defend ourselves against tyranny back in 1775. I teach this stuff, and I really enjoy it. And the people that come out are just awesome. gives me confidence for the future of our country. Because you've got Joe Sixpack sitting at home watching Dancing with the Stars and American Idol and all this stuff has absolutely no effect on our nation. These people are not citizens. 
It just they're not even participants. I choose not to use profanity, even though richly deserved at times. But this guy is uh, has a right to have his revolver. And the underground, the thieves and the druggies and the gamblers do not have rights to oppress other people, just like tyrants don't have rights to oppress other people. And there are consequences for attacking American citizens. Hessians found that out 239 years ago today. And the sleaze that got shot by this citizen in his own apartment defending himself deserved it. You break into somebody's house in the state of Maine, it's not safe to do that. And that is why the FBI says that the state of Maine is the safest state in the Union. Now, we've had a few problems down around Lewiston lately. Young people beating up elderly people and and uh, without getting into the ethnic side of it, because there's not enough time left in this show. Suffice it to say that this has been sudden, and this has happened over the last couple of years. And we're not number one safest state. Vermont has taken over again, because we go back and forth. Sometimes Vermont is the safest state, and sometimes Maine is the safest state. But Vermont has a growing drug problem, just as we do. We've got heroin coming into into the state of Maine. And as these oxy products drop in availability, because they're starting to crack down on the docks, because, you know, most of the people getting prescriptions for these things don't need oxy. Oxycontin, oxycodone, they don't need it. There are other ways to control pain. I know a guy that had a TENS unit, and he was injected into his nerves, and he could turn the turn it up and turn it down as he needed to. So if he had slipped on the ice and fell down, he could turn that thing up and turn the pain off. And as he didn't need it, he'd turn it back down. He'd turn it off. He had it. This thing was implanted in him. I don't know how it works. But that's how we controlled it. So we had an exciting year. Next year is going to be even more exciting. I'll tell you what I think is coming. Got a pretty good track record on that. I've got over 170 shows to get bored and want to listen to something. And go back and check on something. And uh, if I make any big mistakes, I will let you know. So far, I've got a pretty clean record. Roll back up here. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscious of Maine. As I scroll down to all signs here, it's WXME on 780 on your dial. And I can't remember the frequencies. I've got to scroll to it here. But I'll get there. 
the meantime, Happy New Year. And I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas. Be careful. The ice isn't safe on most lakes. Even though you're going to see a skim of ice with a little bit of snow on it. And this is what it looks like last year, this time of year. There's only a half an inch of ice on a lot of those. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitution Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. Take advantage of this day. It's beautiful. Do your running around because tomorrow it's going to be what my grandmother called a wretched mess. Be safe. God bless. <laughs>